Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We also have a usual contribution from New York, from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who has been talking to Phil Angelidis, former head of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Here in the UK, we have been talking to Andrea Enria, who is the head of the European Banking Authority, the pan-EU regulator. Today, we'll be talking about the latest distress across the banking sector, really, particularly concerning our worries about the capital situation of some of Europe's biggest banks. Secondly, we'll be looking at HSBC as it leans towards staying put in the UK rather than emigrating to Hong Kong. And finally, that contribution from the US, from Ben. First, though, Laura, let's have a chat about what's going on in the banking market. We've seen bank shares both in the US and Europe tanking over the past few weeks, perhaps not surprising given the volatility more broadly in the markets. What's the situation in the US? Have the big US banks been hurt? Yeah, I mean, since the start of this year, two of the US's biggest banks have seen their share price fall by more than 20%. The situation in the US is a little bit different because the concerns aren't so much about the capital, they're about the trading environment the banks are in, in particular in relation to their oil exposures, because the US banks would have a lot more lending to the oil and gas sector than the European banks have. So there's big concerns there, and that is one of the key reasons that the US banks are being hit. But in Europe, it's far worse. Particular concerns over recent days. We had Credit Suisse results out last week, which were particularly weak. Deutsche Bank is now really in the crosshairs over concerns around its capital strength and even the solidity of its credit. What the heck is going on? Yeah, it does all feel a bit mad out there, certainly this week. It's been a very exciting start to the year, I guess, is one way of putting it. I think there's real doubts about the capital level of some of the biggest European banks, Deutsche and Credit Suisse in particular. In the case of Deutsche, you have a new CEO who hasn't raised capital at this point, even though Deutsche's capital has been a question mark for people for a very long time. Now, Deutsche's absolute level of common equity tier one capital is 11.1%, which is well above minimums and is actually above the CET1 capital or the same kind of capital for the US bank Wells Fargo, which is one of the safest banks at 10.7%. The issue for Deutsche is people think Deutsche has a lot more to come in terms of the losses coming forward. So they expect that that CET1 capital ratio is going to fall as the bank takes more losses. It's hard to see organic earnings coming through to lift it. So the only way to get it back to a better position is to actually go out to raise capital. At the same time, you're seeing the bank's junior bonds trading at really low levels. There was a report from analysts earlier in the week saying that Deutsche may not be able to honour all of the coupons on these bonds. Then Deutsche came out and took the rather extraordinary step of issuing a statement confirming that they actually could pay all those bonds as they came due. That appears to have actually made things worse. It's the kind of thing where for the bank to publicly acknowledge it in that way makes it much more of a serious issue. So Deutsche Bank's shares are bad, their bonds are bad, and it's difficult to see in the immediate term how they can put a floor under this. 
We should say that Deutsche is not the only one in the focus of, of investors. As you mentioned, Credit Suisse as well has come under fire. That was on the back of results last week where we saw one of the kind of key misses from Credit Suisse was actually hitting its year-end capital target. Yeah, there's some confusion around the capital targets because basically at the end of October, Credit Suisse unveiled a plan and they had several year-end estimates in the plan. Those estimates included things like the level of CET1 capital they'd have. They didn't hit those. The bank says those were not targets, those were estimates. Analysts say if we see a full-year estimate, we think that's a target. So on that basis, they didn't hit the target. There's a lot of stuff at play. I mean, Credit Suisse has been trying to sell things and the markets were not very good for that towards the end of the year. So arguably, you're better off to hold off selling rather than taking a loss now. If you end up selling later, then you have a poor CET1 ratio for longer because you have a bigger asset base to sustain. The problem for Credit Suisse, I think, is that they have already raised capital. They raised $6 billion in capital at the end of last year. That was meant to finally say, right, we have enough capital and people want them to go big and to go once and then for it to be done. For them to have come in with a CET1 ratio at the lower end of the scale opens up the whole capital question in a way which really isn't helpful for the bank. The fears around Credit Suisse are twofold. There's the absolute capital destruction, but there's also the fact that their earnings stream is hard to see. They have a plan which does say that they are going to start earning money, but it's based on some what people would kind of kindly describe as being optimistic forecasts around Asia in particular. And given what's happening in the world and what's even happened since that plan was unveiled at the end of October when it comes to Asian markets, oil prices, all that big macroeconomic stuff, it's very hard to have confidence that Credit Suisse can hit what were always ambitious targets. So people don't see any earnings coming to prop up the common equity tier one ratio. And if you can't do it through earnings and you can't sell fast because of the markets, the only way to do it is to go back and ask for more cash. This whole topic of capital is something that I discussed a few days ago with Andrea Enria, who's the head of the EBA, the European Banking Authority, which is the pan-EU regulator. Very interestingly, it was shortly before the very latest jitters, especially at Deutsche, but it was amid all the turmoil that we've seen in the markets. And very interestingly, I think he was pointing out that the world really shouldn't be worried about capital levels at European banks. I just wanted to ask you about your upcoming stress tests. This is a regular feature now in lots of parts of the world, but particularly in Europe. You are changing the way you do them, though, this time. You're not going to have pass or fail. Why is that? Well, I think we are in a different phase now. The exercise is not anymore an exercise aimed at recapitalization. It's more an exercise focused on transparency, ensuring that there is a common adverse scenario, common methodology, allowing investors, analysts, external parties to compare and contrast the European banks on the same basis. Still, the outcome of the exercise will be an input in the supervisory processes to assess the capital adequacy of the banks, to assess their capital plans going forward, and to, and this would, of course, lead to also actions, possibly by supervisors, to make sure that banks are moving in the right direction. But overall, you would agree, would you, that capital levels now in the system are where they need to be? This is what Mark Carney and others have been saying lately. I agree that the levels which have been achieved are satisfactory. On average, of course, there might be banks which have still some way to go, but on average, the levels of capital are satisfactory. And uh, we are now also fixing, let's say, the, uh, the issue of, uh, of the denominator of, uh, of the ratio of the uh, risk-weighted assets. We have done a lot of work as EBA 
in this area and we are coming out in these days with a roadmap for uh, repairing and ensuring more consistent and reliable outcomes of internal models. This will not lead to an overall increase of the capital requirements, but might well lead to, let's say, identifying outliers that need still to do something to adjust their calculations. So let's move on to our second topic for the day in HSBC. Emma, this has been a long-running saga. I think it was last April that HSBC first said that they were reviewing where their headquarters should be. Should it be in the UK? Should it be in Hong Kong? Should it be somewhere else? And they've been doing a lot of work, spending a lot of money, trying to get to the bottom of what makes sense. It seems from what we're hearing that they are very close to making a decision and that that decision is likely to be that they will stay put in the UK. Tell me what you think has got between what originally was Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive's desire, really, to go to Hong Kong and what seems now to be a likely decision to remain. Yes, well, the fact that this report has been much delayed over the past 10 months suggests that there has been quite a bit of wrangling among board members over their decision as to whether to stay or whether to go. And just to point out, this isn't the first time that HSBC has undertaken a review of the domicile of its headquarters, which have been in the UK since its 1992 takeover of Midland Bank. In fact, they've previously undertaken them every few years. But this is the first time it seems to have really garnered credibility in terms of the threat of them potentially moving abroad. Now, when they launched the review last April, this was at a time when the UK had a coalition government and it was facing its most uncertain election in about a century. So there were concerns among all the banks, to be fair, that a left-leaning government could win and perhaps impose higher taxes, dare I say, upon banks and perhaps more stringent regulation upon the sector. At the same time, Hong Kong was considered the favourite choice for HSBC, given its roots. And it's worth pointing out that the bulk of HSBC's business in terms of risk-weighted assets is overseas. It's not even in the UK. So it seemed very credible at that point that they could move overseas and potentially to Hong Kong. However, a lot has changed since last April. The election outcome saw a decisive Conservative victory, arguably a boon to UK banks. Subsequently, George Osborne, the Chancellor, unveiled changes to the bank levy, which provided another seeming boost to HSBC. They were one of the banks that paid the most. So in 2014, I think they paid about $1.1 billion, and the year before that, about $900 million. So quite a hefty chunk. And Osborne unveiled plans to reduce this. So that seemed another boost to HSBC. And then suddenly, Hong Kong seemed less enticing as a potential domicile, following a stock market route and economic concerns in China in August and again at the start of this year. And also, I think particularly fair to say that there's been some concern within the banking sector generally among those who have a presence in Asia, but particularly at HSBC, that maybe more than the short-term market volatility in China and beyond, it's kind of the way policymakers have responded, particularly the whole issue of Hong Kong's territorial independence from China potentially being thrown into question by some of the arrests that we've seen and so on, as the authorities probe some of that volatility. It's a very fraught question, obviously. We won't get an answer to this whole issue potentially for another week or two maybe the most likely timing is around fourth quarter results from hsbc on the 22nd of february we'll be watching that very closely 
Let's move on to our final topic for the day, which is a report from Ben in New York, who has been talking to Phil Angelides. And now he is the former head of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission in the US. And he very interestingly has made an appeal. He said he's going to call on the US Attorney General to bring charges against some of the bankers who were at the centre of the uh, financial crisis back in 2008 before a 10-year statute of limitations applies. Phil, thank you very much for joining me. Can I start by asking, why write this letter? Well, I've written the letter, first of all, in the big picture, because I think the American people are owed a measure of justice here. I mean, we don't want hangman justice. We don't want revenge for what occurred. But what we have a right to expect is fair scrutiny of justice for any wrongdoing and punishment and deterrence if there was, in fact, wrongdoing. And here's what we know. Our report documented widespread corruption and fraud in the mortgage markets. Specifically, we turned over evidence, made public and turned over evidence, of uh, what appeared to be improper conduct in the packaging and sale of mortgage securities Mm -hmm. to the Department of Justice. And five years after our report, despite the evidence that we turned over and the evidence accumulated in other places, not one single Wall Street executive has been charged for wrongdoing. And this is particularly remarkable in the context of the fact that 18 major financial institutions have paid more than $36 billion in fines related to misconduct in the packaging and sale of mortgage securities. So I asked a simple question. How could the banks have engaged in such massive misconduct and wrongdoing without a single individual being involved? In a sense, it's the immaculate corruption. Now, what stands in stark contrast is the Department of Justice has charged over 2,700 individuals in communities across this nation for lying on their mortgage applications, mortgage brokers for having done wrongdoing, but not one single executive of the institutions that drove this corrupt mortgage machine. And the reason I've written this letter at this point is pretty simple. The 10-year statute of limitations is running and running out quickly. Our commission found evidence of wrongdoing in 2006 and the first half of 2007, where it's very clear that major financial institutions materially misrepresented the quality of loans that they were bundling and selling into the marketplace. And this was the basis of the massive fines I just talked about. And I'm urging the attorney general to do the right thing Mm -hmm. before the statute of limitation runs out. The one other thing I would add is the new attorney general herself, under her tenure, the Department of Justice adopted new policies in September of 2015 that said that from here on out, the Department of Justice was going to go after and pursue wrongdoing by individuals, not by inanimate corporate entities. And so this is an opportunity and really a necessity that the Department of Justice pursue the individuals who are responsible for the wrongdoing. Okay. Well, my job gives me pretty good access to some of the guys perhaps you you might like to see in the dock. But whenever I speak to them about the events they refer to as legacy problems, I always hear variants of the defense that we're all culpable. Everyone from the chairman of the bank down to the lowliest clerk on the front desk, all of us complicit in this gigantic delusion that house prices would never fall. Is that a fair defense? Well, there's two different things here. There's the participation in a market delusion, but there's also actual violations of securities laws. And what I talked 
very specifically in my letter about to the attorney general are a set of facts that are very disturbing and that have led to $36 billion plus in fines. And let me just describe this very quickly. In the course of our investigation, we came across documents from a company called Clayton Holdings. They were called the Clayton Trending Reports, and they're quite striking because they're charts in black and white. Clayton was hired by more than two dozen major financial institutions, JP Morgan, Goldman, B of A, all the big financial institutions who were buying mortgages from AmeriQuest, Countrywide, New Century, taking those mortgages, securitizing them, and then selling them to investors across the globe. Now, Clayton was hired to do due diligence on the mortgages that these big banks were buying. And by the way, I think one of the reasons they were doing due diligence was so when the banks were buying these mortgages from Countrywide or New Century, they could see the quality of them and price them appropriately. Well, what they were doing is Clayton would sample two to three percent of the mortgages in the pool. And what these reports we found showed was that from January 2006 to June 2007, Clayton reviewed 911,000 mortgages being bought by two dozen institutions. And they found that nearly one in three of the loans were defective, failures. They were reviewing these for whether the loans conformed with the standards that the lenders had stated, and which, by the way, as you know, by 2006, 2007, were pretty darn low. Mortgage lending standards were, you know, almost non-existent. But they were finding that one in three of the mortgages were failures. Despite that, that fact was never disclosed to investors, nor did the banks ever sample the other 97% of the loans. And in fact, of the loans that failed, they put 39% of those into the pool. So let me just recount this. One in three of the loans are failing. They're accepting basically 40% of the failure loans. And even though they know there's a one in three failure rate, they take the other 97% all into their pool. So it's very clear to the banks themselves that these mortgage pools have enormous defects. It's never disclosed to investors. In fact, the banks disclose something quite contrary. They disclose that these loans meet the standards. It's material misrepresentation. Now, on the basis of this very clear evidence, The banks have entered into these massive settlements. But here's the question. Someone conducted this behavior. Someone approved this behavior. And I think what's required is a bottom to top inquiry at each of the major institutions as to who knew what and who sanctioned essentially this material misrepresentation. So for people to say we participate in delusion, that's one thing. To participate in material misleading of investors who lost hundreds of billions of dollars, that's quite something else. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Emma here in the studio, Andrea and Ria, our guest from the EBA, and also Ben and his guest Philangelidis in New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.